I am very excited to be starting through the book of Genesis with you. This has been a desire of mine for a long time, and I'm, I confess, and I've shared with some of you, this is more nerve. I'm more nervous than I've ever been starting a book, um, and I, I think it's just because as I've been reading through it again and again, and and preparing for this, you just realize how how much there is and how critical this is to understand the scripture. But the closer I get now, I'm just getting more and more excited because I realize how helpful this is to our understanding. And so here we go in uh, Genesis 1. Well, a a good beginning to a book or to a movie or to a sermon series (laughs) can be a very wonderful thing. Uh, I'm not going to make a promise on the last one of those. Uh, this morning, I can almost guarantee you that this introductory sermon is probably going to be a pair of introductory sermons, and I've already been teased for only going through three verses this morning, and uh, we'll probably make it through one, uh, so just be warned, and that's not indicative of the pace we're going to take through the rest of Genesis, please. It's okay. Keep coming back. Um, but but a good beginning to a book or movie, it, it, it does a lot of things. It draws you into the story. It sets the tone. It, it makes you want more. Uh, it, it, and, it, and it also it orients you to the context. And so you, a, good, a good opening line, opening scene does all of those things. Those now famous yellow letters that scrolled up the big screen for the very first time in 1977, a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. With that music score, I'm like, I'm in. You got me. Um, maybe not quite so so profound as Star Wars, but hello, my name's Forrest, Forrest Gump. I'm not going to do the impression here. Do you want a chocolate? I could eat about a million and a half of these. My mom always said life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Now, we, we recognize that as kind of humorous, but do you see what that writer has done there? He is, he's, he's set the tone of the whole film. He's given us a name. He's introduced this personality that's very distinct. He, we have this scene, this image in that Savannah uh, square there. We have the, the era of the film and, and even in the little metaphor, the box of chocolates, it's a snapshot of the whole movie. I mean, it's brilliant. Or to maybe to go farther back, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief, it was the epic of incredulity. It was a season of light, it was a season of darkness. It was a spring of hope, it was a winter of despair. Again, a perfect setup for a tale of two cities. And it just is grabbing your attention and it's setting up these contrasting life conditions that led up to the French Revolution. And, and it's brilliant. Again, so today, though, we're going to see the greatest beginning of all time. Not just to a story, but not just to a sermon series, but to the story, to the book, the beginning of the Bible. And so I know you're there already, but I want to say it because I've never been able to say this before. Turn to page one in your Bible. Um, you missed your opportunity, so. Yeah, alright, you'll get there. The, the Hebrew title of this book is Bereshith, which is the very first word of 
of Genesis 1 here. It's the opening word, and that's how ancient literature was generally, titles were given. So, here's verse 1 in Hebrew. Bereshith bara Elohim. Et hashamayim ve'et ha'aretz. And so, this is, this is the beginning. In the beginning. And so, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek about 250 B.C., the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Greeks just gave their equivalent of that word which is where we get our word Genesis, beginnings, origins. And so appropriately, the Bible begins with beginning. That's the very first word. And these first words are probably the most widely read words in human history. Think about that. Almost everybody who's ever picked up a Bible to read it, where do you start? You start on page one. And so these words have been read countless times through the centuries. And, and, and all of those one-year Bible reading plans that many of you began, <laughs> you didn't make it through Numbers, but you got through Genesis 1. You read these words many, many, many times, starting those plans. But this isn't just most widely read. It, this book contains some of the most important words in human history. They, they set the stage for the entire drama of redemption. The book of Genesis, as we're seeing, as Eric said, it's foundational to, to all Scripture. One, one commentator said the, 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 it is the seed plot for the entire Bible. And so it's not just that if we took Genesis out, the Bible would be incomplete and we'd have 65 books instead of 66, and we just think, oh, that's, that's too bad. No, the Bible would be, it wouldn't be understandable without Genesis. That's how critical it is. What the, what the acorn is to the oak tree, Genesis is to the rest of Scripture. And so it's critical that we, we properly understand the, the beginning of the Bible in order to understand the rest of the Bible. That's my point. So you get, the, you get the beginning wrong and you're going to be stumbling right out of the gate. And, I, and I'm not at all suggesting that you know, you're going to be a heretic if you kind of mess Genesis up or something like that or you can't be a Christian if you get this wrong. But, but you're going to be walking with a limp. And look, trust me, we all have our theological limps and in practice too. But, but this is the case. But, but almost all important doctrines have their foundation in the book of Genesis. This is why in the New Testament there are almost 200 direct quotes or, or real strong references to the book of Genesis. It's so foundational and and you go into the Old Testament and it's, and it's just it's quoted and all over the place and referred to. It's, it's critical. Our understanding of sin and judgment, justification, redemption, promise of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the kingdom, Israel, government, nations, religions, culture, language, marriage, imputed righteousness, life as sojourners that we saw in Peter, so many other things. It's all rooted right here in Genesis. You know, I, th- I think often as Christians, we, we, we kind of think wrongly about the Old Testament. We, we sometimes we, we view the Old Testament as sort of kind of the, the beta version of truth. It's, it's kind of the lesser, it's the, it, it, it kind of get, it gets the idea, but then you get to the New Testament, we have the fullness of truth, and so eh, it's really not worth fooling too much with the Old Testament. That's just such wrong thinking. The, the, the book of Genesis, again, is the very foundation of the faith of which all other truth taught in Scripture is built. We are, we are, we are never done with these glorious truths that we're going to be seeing in Genesis. Never done with them. 
And so because of all of this, I, I do feel like, like it's like we're on the edge of greatness this morning. Not because of the preacher by any means. But just this, this enormity of this glorious revelation that we have in Genesis. And, and I'm so excited. I, we're, we're going to embark on a journey here that's going to affect our understanding of everything. And I'm confident in that statement. I'm not trying to overstate that. So this morning... We're simply going to look at the prologue, the introduction to this this book of Genesis. The first two verses, Lord willing, we'll make it through two verses. And and until May, we're going to explore the first uh, of the two main sections of Genesis. So Genesis is divided up into two main sections. You have Genesis chapters 1 to 11, which is the history of uh, uh, early history, so humanity in general. And so... So we have these four key events in chapters 1 to 11. You have creation, you have the fall, you have uh, uh, um, the flood, and you have the Tower of Babel. And so there's four key events that we'll see just relating to all the human history. In chapters 12 to 50, you have this clear transition in chapter 12 with the call of Abraham. And, and we will not start that probably until January of 2020. We're not going to be in 1 through 11 until December, don't worry. But we're going to take a break and do some other things. Uh, but when we get into chapters 12 to 50, we're looking at the history of the patriarchs, the, the founding fathers of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joshua, or Joseph. And so this is, this is kind of the, the big scope of where we're going. But Moses, as we're going to see, uh, he didn't write some detailed history of every event and every person that's recorded for us here. That's not what he's done. For instance... The entire creation account is only 76 words in the Hebrew language. 76 words. So everything it says is true, but it just doesn't say everything. That's not, that's not its intention. And so there's, there's, there's far more detail about the fall and about the flood and about Babel than there is about creation. So, so in reality, chapters 1 through 11, the real focus is about humanity's just utter failure. It's this record of failure. But with the call of Abraham, there's this, there's this hope of a new beginning. And, and man's, man's sin brought curse, but God's gracious covenant with Abraham, it, it brought the hope of blessing to the world. And this is why the whole series we're calling From Ruin to Redemption. And this is the, this is the path of Genesis, which is the path, which again is our story. Ruin to redemption. So when man does his worst, when man reaches his lowest, God gives him a new beginning. And so we could say then that from, from beginning to end, Genesis is this, is this story of God's sovereign, electing, relentless grace. We're going to see its grace all the way through. Amazing grace in Genesis. Because it's amazing because there's this increasing avalanche of sin and resulting punishment, there is always more grace. Genesis once said, breathe the grace of God. And so, you just take, take Paul's words, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. I mean, that characterizes Genesis. And we're going to, again, see that over and over and over again. It was grace in the beginning, it will always be grace. And we get to the patriarchs in Genesis 12-50. to 50. 
It's not like we're going to be looking at some flawless men who, who, who are these impressive heroes. And so the, the appeal is not going to be, man, be like Abraham. That's not going to be the, the application of that. And I know you've heard many stories in Sunday school lessons that that's kind of the thrust. But that's not the point. What stands out is not the worthiness of these men. It's what stands out is the grace and the faithfulness of our God over and over and over again in spite of their unfaithfulness. And so God remains faithful even when the people to whom He made the promises to become the the greatest uh, threats to the fulfillment of those promises. He's faithful. No one, not even the sinful, disordered lives of the promise bearers can thwart God's promises and abort them. Relentless grace. So, so therefore, what we're going to see is there's only one hero in Genesis. There's one, and it's God. There's only one hero in the Bible. That's God. Genesis is meant to bring God's heroic character into full view for us. And I pray that it will. And so right there at the beginning, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. And immediately we're introduced to the hero, to the main character, to God. Genesis and the Bible, it's not a book about you and me. It's not about your life. It is about God. It's God's revelation of Himself to us. We often treat it though like it's some kind of manual that we can help fix our lives. Like a Christian version of Aesop's fables where we're where we have all of these stories, this collection of stories that teaches us morality, or, or, or we see it as just a, a bunch of things we must do, a bunch of rules that we have to follow uh, in order to be good people. But that's not it. The Bible and Genesis, beginning with it, it's about God and everything that He has done to bring us back to Himself. This is what it's about. It's, it's from God, it points us to God by showing us God. And so it's markedly theocentric. It's God-centered, the book of Genesis. And again, it starts that way. So appropriately, begins with God. These, these opening words, they bring us face-to-face with ultimate reality. With God Himself, the person of God. If we miss the significance of that, we've missed everything already. We've only three words in, we're only three words in here. And so these verses... Or, or, or any other verse in Scripture, they don't, they're not making elaborate arguments for the existence of God. They're simply declaring that God is. In the beginning, God. Alright, that's the first introduction. Second introduction to the sermon. Um, you think I'm joking. That's not a joke. <laughs> I'm telling you. This is, this is not how you want to begin a series, but this is how we're beginning this series. To, to begin a, a study of a book, any book of the Bible, but certainly of, of the book of Genesis, one of the most important things to keep in mind is the author's intent in writing the book. Um, that's Again, we think of this so often when we come to New Testament. We're talking about one of Paul's letters. We're, we're considering who he wrote the letter to, what was going on in Paul's life, what were the circumstances in the church. And so we, we ask all of those questions in, in those New Testament epistles. And then we get to a book like Genesis, and we, it's like we throw all that aside. But that's, that's not helpful. That's, that's, it's so important in good interpretation and study of God's Word. It, it starts by taking into, into consideration the original author 
and the original audience and, and, and the historical context in which this is written. And so our natural tendency is to bring all of our expectations and all of our uh, thoughts and all of our feelings and all of our culture to the text. And, and this can be somewhat, so this can be somewhat challenging for us because that's the way we're, we're bent. Or we, we tend to in, interpret Scripture through the lens of our circumstances. And that can be very dangerous. Um, and so, let's keep that in mind. So who wrote Genesis? Who wrote Genesis? The Scriptures, both Old Testament and New Testament, affirm that Moses is the author of Genesis and the first five books of the Old Testament, which, in, in, which are referred to most often in Scripture as the Book of Moses or as the Law of Moses. Sometimes you're referred to as the Torah or the Pentateuch. But those first five books of our Old Testament are affirmed throughout Scripture as being written by Moses. But even more than that, Jesus Himself affirms that Moses wrote the, 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 is the author of Genesis in John 5, 45 and 47 and Luke 24, 27 and other places. So, now, of course, as we're going, if, if we were to go through all five books of the Old Testament, or of, of uh, the first five books of the Old Testament here, we would see that there are, there are parts of, Gen, uh, of, parts of uh, the book of Moses that are slightly revised or added after Moses. Likely Joshua was probably who made these uh, addition, additions. So Moses would have had a hard time writing about his own death in Deuteronomy 34. And that's the most glaring one. But it's still, it's right to say that Moses wrote Genesis through Deuteronomy. I mean, that's what Scripture affirms. There's no reason to distrust that. Now, I say, if you go to Clayton State, I'm not trying to pick on Clayton State, but it's the closest college. If you go down there and you take an introduction to religions, religions course, they're going to say, no, 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 Moses didn't write Genesis. You know, it was just a collection of all of these myths and put together and pieced together and you have, you have this. So they're going to deny it, but I just want you to say, Scripture affirms, Jesus affirms, Moses is the author of Genesis and there's no reason to doubt that. When was it written? The, the dating inside Genesis, the internal dating, just in seeing the events and how it's, the, it's communicated, would put it around the late 15th century B.C. 15th century B.C. So at, this is at the time uh, of or immediately following the exodus from Egypt. And so when Israel's wandering in the wilderness, this is the, the setting of this book. This is when this was, was penned. And so, understanding this helps us to get to why Moses wrote Genesis. And now we're getting somewhere. Why was this written at this time? Why did the Spirit of God direct Moses and, and inspire Moses to, to write these words? Why was this revelation given to us by God at this time to His people? So, he's not, Moses wasn't writing to silence critics who questioned the existence of God. He wasn't writing to, to so that... Israel could have an argument to atheists. He wasn't writing into our contemporary creation-evolution debates. That's not, that's not his point. Now, does Genesis have something to speak into those contexts? Absolutely it does. But that's not the, the purpose of, of, of its initial writing. And it's important to keep that in mind. What's the intended purpose? Here's the original situation. The original... The, the, the Israelites... They've come out of Egypt and they're en route to the promised land. They had just escaped this oppressive 
Polytheism just means a worship of many, many gods of Egypt. They had all their temples, all their pyramids, their gods of the sun gods and moon gods and all these just plethora of gods in Egypt. And so they've come out of that. Now they're in the wilderness and they're surrounded by these other nations, pagan nations, and, and they have their polytheism and they have their pantheism which says everything's God. And, and, and there are all these made up myths and liturgies circulating around about these pagan gods. And so that's the world. And so the Israelites, they would have been wrestling with questions like, is our God, is the Lord Yahweh, the one who made covenant with us, is He the real God? Is He the best God? Is He the most powerful God? Is He the only God? I know we, we kind of think, oh, well, how in the world could they see this? Why didn't they just see this in Scripture? No, they didn't have it. So they're, they're struggling with these questions. Having lived so long among, among these gods of the Egyptians and being introduced to these gods of these other foreign nations and that surrounded them now, they're struggling to believe that their God was the true God. And we know they're struggling because of we, we see this proclivity they have to worshiping the idols of the nations around them and creating idols. And so there's this idolatry that came with these other religions, building and worshiping and trusting in idols. And this was a perennial temptation for the Israelites. Right away after the Exodus. So they're quick to, to worship these false gods, these idols, because they believe that these might have the power to save them or to rescue them or to help them. And, and, and that was despite this relationship that the Lord, Yahweh, had initiated with them. And so all the writers of the Old Testament, Moses included, they, they're repeatedly, repeatedly reminding God's people, Israel, that, that there's this one true God. The God of Israel, the Lord, he, no one can match His power. And so he, God alone is uncreated. He alone created the heavens and the earth and all every molecule and every atom and everything that we encounter. Psalm 96 uh, testifies to this. Verse 4 and 5, For the Lord is great and is highly praised. He is feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Now we're getting to why this book begins in this way. There's this strong statement that the root of Israel's problems was this lack of belief, lack of trust in the, the power and the might and the goodness of God. And so they needed these constant reminders that their God is powerful and mighty and good and that He alone is able to save. And listen, we need those too. I mean, this is why we gather every Lord's Day. This is, we're constantly needing to remind ourselves. And we have more revelation. We have the Gospel to, to behold and to remind ourselves of these truths even as we sang this morning. But we, we, we struggle in the same way. We question it. We doubt it. And we need to be constantly reminded of it. So, so to begin remedying their, their wandering hearts, God spoke to His people to help them to help them understand that the God of their bedtime stories, the God they heard from little kids on growing up hearing about, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of their fathers was the very same God who created the world. The God of Israel, not the God of the Canaanites, not the God of the Philistines, not any other gods, the God of Israel was the creator of everything. So Moses, under the Spirit's inspiration he just takes these 
these false gods, these idols head on. And he wrote words that would forever establish a true understanding of about God and about the universe and about humanity. So right away in the very first sentence, there's this radical sweeping affirmation of monotheism, one God over and against polytheism, which was everywhere in that day, many gods. Now, so, so Genesis, it was, it was originally written for these, for these Israelites who were tempted to worship these idols, but how does that intersect with your life? I know you're thinking there. If you haven't, I haven't lost you already. This is, I hope, a question you're kind of thinking through. Let me just say, as we, as we start today, and certainly as we go through this book, don't just view Genesis as simply descriptive. Don't view it as it's like you're, you're in a museum looking at something very interesting under the glass. And you're, wow, that's very interesting. And there's all kinds of things that are, are fascinating about this story. That's not it. No, you are in this story. This is, this is your story. These are your temptations. This is your God. you're a descendant of Adam. You're connected to Abraham. I mean, Genesis doesn't mean less to us than it did to the Israelites. It means more to us. The, The pages of this book reveal who God is and remind us that He is our God. We sing, Behold our God. And He, this God, and He alone will reign forever. We we need this reminder. And so there's no other God besides the God of Genesis. Your God today that we're singing of and we're beholding and that we see through the lens of Calvary and the empty tomb is the same God that we behold right here in the very first verse. In the beginning, God. Let's behold Him here. What do we see about God in these opening couple of verses here? First thing we'll say is this. Before there was creation, there was God. Before there was anything created, there was God. In the beginning, God. God, the word here for God is is the Hebrew word Elohim. It's used almost 3,000 times in the Old Testament, so very common. And it dominates the whole first chapter of Genesis. 35 times in Genesis chapter 1. The whole section, again, it's about Him. And so as we're going to see, the God, Elohim, who created everything is the same God of Abraham and, and, and the fathers. And so Genesis 2.4, just flip over a page. And we'll talk about how this connects with Genesis 1 but later. But this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day the Lord, when you see Lord in all caps like that, it's, it's, it's code for us and we know that that is the translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh or Jehovah. The Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, the Lord God, Elohim, made earth and heaven. So Elohim is Yahweh. Yahweh is Elohim, the covenant God of Israel, our Lord. And just again, keep that in mind, the context in which it's written. So now the beginning of Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created it refers to the beginning of the universe, not the beginning of God. That's my point. Before the universe began, God was. God stretches farther back 
than our minds can possibly comprehend. His existence, it doesn't have a starting point, and it won't have an ending point. He is, as the psalmist says, from everlasting to everlasting. He always has been. He always will be. Now, if you are listening, if I haven't lost you already, I realize that your brain is starting to hurt as you're trying to just conceive of this. Because it's, in, it's more than we can possibly comprehend. Because we're created. So when we declare that with Scripture that God is eternal, we start thinking about what was happening before God created the universe. Where was He? What was He doing? What, what, how, what was it like for God to just be without the universe? And those are, those are fine things to consider. And, and, but listen, we've got to be careful that we don't just kind of go into some downward spiral of speculative philosophy here. And, and, and there's a, most of this is, is mystery to us. We have some that's revealed, and we're going to look briefly at that, but most of it is, is we're, not, we're not told. If we if we if we're not careful, we can kind of devolve, and we're we're asking these stupid uh, philosophy class, you know, questions. The, the the old historical one is how many angels can dance on the head of a pen, and we're we're just we've just we're getting ridiculous if we're not careful. But because we as creatures, we we can't get our minds around life, which was what we're saying. God is. He's living. He's, he's a personal God. He's living for eternity. We can't get our, our, our minds around life without time and matter. Stay with me. Just think of the way we even conceive of time. It, it's bound together with stuff, with, with matter. How do we measure time? We, we look at a clock and we see the hands moving around on the face. Or we, you're playing Pictionary or some other game. You've got the little hourglass thing and a little sand falling through the glass, and we're, we're, we're seeing that sandfall, and we're measuring time in that way. There are many, many different ways to measure time. Every single one of them re- relies upon um, motion relative to some type of matter. If there's no matter, we can't measure motion. And if we can't measure motion, then we can't measure time. Alright, I can measure time by hearing some of you snoring right now. Um, so we're getting back on the main road here. But... I just want you to feel the wonder of this declaration that God is. He is is eternal. God has no beginning. In the beginning, He's already there. He already is. So what was God doing before creation? A couple things. One, God was existing in perfect glory. This is what Scripture does tell us. He was existing in perfect glory. He he was existing by... and, And Patrick alluded to this earlier this morning. By saying that, we're saying that God alone possesses this ability to self-exist. The, the fancy doctrinal word is he, he has the attribute of aseity. Aseity. A-S-E-I-T-Y. It's just self-existence. God eternally existed of Himself and for Himself. He didn't, he's not a dependent being. He doesn't derive His existence from any other source. He's not, he's not the effect of some cause. Prior cause. In a word, we're just saying He's not a creature. He's not like us or anything else in the universe. No creatures have the attribute of aseity, of self-existing. We can't just exist. All creatures are derived. We come from something. We're, we're made by something. We're, we're dependent. We can't live independently. 
This is the essence of our creature list. But God is totally self-sufficient. He needs nothing. He needs nothing more than Himself in order to exist. A.W. Tozer said it this way, God has a, has a voluntary relation to everything He has made. And then listen to this, but He has no necessary relation to anything outside of Himself. He's just saying, God, God needs nothing. It wasn't because He was lacking anything in Himself that He created the universe or humanity. No, He was existing in perfect eternal glory. This is, again, this is mind-boggling for us. I, I know. Because we can't, it's hard for us to conceive of this. Thinking about the nature and the character of God as uh, who, who, who always was and who always is and who always will be and who never changes, it, it's more than, again, our minds can comprehend. But it's true. Moses wrote a psalm. Same one that wrote Genesis 1 here. He wrote a psalm uh, later, a song of praise, and this is the truth that he has in mind. Psalm 90, verse 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth or the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He's just affirming God is and has always been. Second thing we can say that Scripture has told us is that God was living, before creation, He was living in perfect community. God singular living in perfect community. I mean, the, the mystery of the Trinity. One God, three persons. It's, in, it's embedded here in the first words of, of Genesis 1. God, Elohim, that's, a plural, uh, that's in the plural form there. God, Elohim, plural. And then it says, He created. And that's in the singular. The verb's in singular. So God, plural, created, singular. So it's just God, unity and plurality. Now, can you develop a whole doctrine of Trinity based upon those words? No. <laughs> that's, not, that's not it at, at all. We can't show the full reality, but it, but it certainly alludes to this truth. And later, as the, as the doctrine of the Trinity is, is, is elaborated on, particularly in the New Testament, the New Testament writers, they look back to the name of God as evidence of the Trinity. I just say, it, it alludes to this here. We say, before the beginning of the universe, God... The, the one God existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The triune God existed in this perfect harmony and flawlessness, having, having all that they needed in one another. David said in the Psalms that joy and pleasures forevermore are in the presence of God. And so before creation, God felt complete joy and fulfillment and satisfaction as He perfectly beheld and communed with Himself. Again, mind blown, I understand. This is what Scripture tells us. So, so, so before He created the universe, He's completely satisfied in Himself. This perfect, happy society. And so it, it, God has existed eternally in relationship, in community. He didn't create us because He was lonely. He created us out of the overflow of His love. There, there's no perfect illustration or analogy to, to summarize the Trinity. I'll trust the Apostle Paul to give us the closest one. And he, he talks about marriage as sort of this analogy uh, of Trinity. And just saying there's two, two, uh, two beings, but this one essence in the way marriage is designed by God. But just take that image and we say, out of that marriage, out of a healthy, the way marriage is supposed to be, out of that loving union, 
there comes a child. Now, in a good marriage, you don't have kids because you're lonely. Like, I'm tired of, you know, playing games, watching TV with you. I want somebody else to play games and watch TV with. So let's have a kid. You know, that would be more interesting. That's not, that's not why you have a child. You, you, you have a child to bring this child into this already loving union. And so keep that in mind and think that's what we see in Genesis and Scripture. God just, God's, God's love spills out on this canvas of the universe. And, and, and He invites us into His love. He's not lacking anything. He's just bringing us into this already eternally satisfying, loving relationship and community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So He's he's always self-existing. He's in perfect community, perfect glory, before the world ever began. Now, exactly what was happening, what it was like, that remains a mystery to us, but we know one more thing that was happening before creation. And it's this. At some point, the redemption of mankind was planned. We, we learn this. God was planning our redemption before He ever created the world. Now again, just put duct tape on your head or something to keep it from exploding here. But just this is what Scripture tells us. The glorious plan of redemption. It wasn't some divine afterthought. Like, I created this perfect world. And then, oh, man, sin. What am I going to do? And I'm going to put scrambling to put some kind of plan together about Jesus and you, you go, Jesus, and... That's not it. Ephesians 1.4 tells us that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. That our name, Revelation 17.8, our names were written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. 2 Timothy 1.9, Christ saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So in the, in the councils of eternity, our triune God determined to create a world that would include humans made in His image. And He knew the people He created would, would rebel against His authority and, and He ordained their judgment. But He also he determined that His own Son would come to earth and die for the sins of the world. This is all planned before creation. According to Ephesians 1, 3-14, we, we have this plan that's in place before the world began and it's thoroughly Trinitarian. We're chosen by the Father. We're purchased by the Son, sealed with the Holy Spirit. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit, planning redemption all to the praise of His glorious grace and it all began in eternity past. We can't fathom the depths of these realities, brothers and sisters. These eternal counsels. But but we can marvel at what has been revealed to us. And that's what I want us to simply do today. Most, most has not been revealed to us, and it's in what has been revealed, we still struggle to grasp it. But let's just let that sense of being overwhelmed translate into faith and love and worship of our God. So God already was before the beginning. But what did God do in the beginning? And that's where we really get. In the beginning, look again, God created the heavens and the earth. He created. So, second thing they will say. The whole universe was created by God. The whole universe created by God. That word created there, it's only used in 
in the Old Testament of God's work. So you look in the Scripture and you talk about man fashioning, man making even, man, man uh, uh, shaping, but only God creates. That Hebrew word, bara. Only God does that. And, and, and He does this, uh, and it's important to see, this divine work that God does in creating, it's not impersonal. It's, 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 this is, God is very hands-on and personal in creating. He do, he's not a force. He's not an it. He's, he's a he. He's a person. Other creation myths, again, taking the context of what Moses is writing here. Other, the other, the Egyptians, they had, they had myths about origins and they had all these stories and all these other nations had stories about gods warring and, you know, and unions between gods and all these kinds of things about how the world came into being. All these explanations. And, 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 and the, even the explanations about origins in our own day. They speak of the universe being impersonally created. It's this just kind of formed order that happened because, you know, these gods, just this kind of an accident and the world made because their swords clashed or some sea monster died or something like that. Uh, or... Or, again, in our own day, it's just it. But it doesn't care for us. It it isn't concerned about your future. It doesn't care about your hopes. It doesn't care about your pain. It doesn't care about your plans. It doesn't care about your joys. But not so with the Lord. God is personal creator. Again, this is is so familiar to us, but so radically different from everything else the Israelites had ever, uh, had ever come across outside of the Lord. He's distinct from creation. He's outside of creation, but He's not unconcerned for it. He cares. He's not going to concern for us. So a couple of things to note about God's creation of the universe. One, God gave the universe a definite beginning. He gave the universe a definite beginning. The language doesn't suggest some kind of long, drawn-out process of uh, of this, but the, the universe didn't just kind of slowly fade into existence. Uh, that's not it. What, what those first readers would have understood, what, what we need to understand, is that God created the heavens and the earth and He gave them this definite beginning. They were not, and then they were. And what was the difference? God. God created the heavens and the earth. And that, even that phrase, heavens and the earth, that's a specialized phrase. It's a, in, in uh, Hebrew language, we call this a merism. We, we have used this in, other language, in English as well. Just, it's a statement of two opposites to indicate uh, totality. So we say things like, uh, we searched high and low for uh, my car keys or something like that. We're, we're saying, we searched everywhere. You're not saying, well, we didn't, oh, we didn't even think to search the middle. We only searched high and low. Uh, duh, they're right on the counter. You know, I didn't think to look there. No, we're just saying we, we, we search the extremes and then everything in between. Or, or young and old are invited. We're saying everybody's invited. Not 40-year-olds. You're not, you're not included. Because 40-year-olds aren't old, trust me. I'm, I know. Um, but, but God, so we say it's God created the heavens and the earth. Just, it means He created everything. The cosmos, the, the universe. God created everything there is in all creation. Again, consider <coughs> Moses' first audience. The Lord is not just God over Israel. He's not, he's not a regional God. He's not one of many, many religious figures. No. He alone, 
He alone is creator of everything. Everything. And everything that is had this definite God-created beginning. Second, God created the universe, one more fancy word, ex nihilo. And just because if you're reading anything about Genesis, this word's going to come up. Just simply, it's a Latin expression, it means out of nothing. Out of nothing. This is bound up in this word created. It, it implies, this word created, bara, implies effortlessness. It wasn't like, you know, God's sweating or something like that. He just created it. And it also implies um, originality. There was, there was, God wasn't working with pre-existing materials. He didn't, he didn't have anything to, like that. He just merely spoke the universe into existence. Just, just I can't just think of the power involved in that. This God created everything. And we're going to see Him forming in, in the coming in the next couple of weeks here, we're going to see God, what He does with the earth and, and how He, how he uh, forms the earth and fills the earth. But, but just the, everything, the raw material, the cosmos is created by God. And the writer of Hebrews gives it a more precise explanation. He says, by faith, we understand that the universe, all of it, is created by the Word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. He created out of nothing. Ex nihilo. So the, and again, this was a laser guided bomb that Moses here is dropping on that polytheism that surrounded Israel. And it's a frontal attack on the philosophical naturalism and materialism of our own day. Which holds that the only real things are material things, physical things, things we can, you can touch and measure and, and, and hold. And so, I mean, we, the popular expression of this would be Carl Sagan's uh, cosmos and his opening, opening lines. The cosmos is all there is or has been or will be. Listen, the cosmos is not eternal. Matter is not eternal. There was a time when matter as we know it did not exist. In the beginning, God, who is eternal, created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. Out of nothing. Again, think of the force of these words on those original hearers. They're, they're there wandering in the wilderness all those days and starry nights. And in the beginning, God alone created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. And they see those night skies at Sinai. And, and they behold the Milky Way. That They didn't even have a sense that they're part of that as they're also seeing it way out there. But they, they, they see the paths of those comets and, comets and the intermittent meteor showers. They're seeing all these things. And, and it sang to them this song of this omnipotent Creator who, who made it all and who then cared for them. This is, there's no wonder that the Psalms are, are filled with these songs of praise about God being revealed in His power and His goodness and His care being revealed in what He made. I mean, songs like Job 38, we don't have time to look at all these. Psalm 19, we read earlier part of that. Psalm 33, Psalm 136, Isaiah 45. I want to read just a few verses from Isaiah 40. If you remember Isaiah 40, you go chapters 1 to 39 and you're like, I don't know what any of this means. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's very 
challenging. It's wonderful. There's, there's passages that we know from those chapters, but you try to read it, and this is where you kind of get derailed in your Bible reading plan. It's in Isaiah 1-39, to uh, other than a few little spots. But you get to chapter 40, and what are the comfort, oh comfort, my people, says the Lord. And there's, this, there's this turning point, and, and He's speaking words of comfort to His people. What else do you find in Isaiah 40? You have these warnings against idolatry. There's, there's comfort, there's these fleeing idols, and, and, and what, is, what do you find though, throughout this chapter? These, these repeated references to God's creation of the heavens and the earth. And it climaxes with this expression, To whom will you liken me? To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like Him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes. And lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Who created the starry host? He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, the hundreds of hundred thousand million galaxies that are out there. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of His might, and because He is strong in power, not one of them is missing. I mean, how we, how we have to, brothers and sisters, rise above the... the Proverbial congestion and smog and, and behold our God and see Him as this Creator and cosmic caregiver. God created out of nothing every speck of space dust in those hundred thousand million galaxies. And He created every, every out of nothing, every single atom, every sub-microscopic solar system. It's again a God's people in Moses' day wouldn't have even had the understanding of this. But we, we see these things and all little protons and neutrons and electrons that aren't even, aren't even measurable in size. And, and, and God created every bit of it out of nothing. What glory. What grace. What, what help. What care. What a God. Neither, neither the creation... Listen, neither the creation myths... In Moses' day, nor the naturalistic explanations of origins in our own day, they offer us, they don't offer us anything that God's truth offers. And I don't mean that we're creating this to feel good. But listen, you can study you can study and compare ancient Egyptian origin myths in your intro to religion class at Clayton State University. I'm really not knocking on Clayton State. So that can come to mind. We can talk about impersonal chance and time in your philosophy class and how this, you know, freshman philosophy class, and that's all fine. It, it's, it's, it's fine in the classroom. What about the funeral home? What about the hospital bed? What about the mother who just gave birth to a stillborn child? What about the, the, the parents who opened the door at midnight to the state trooper holding his hat across his chest? What does that offer them? What does that do? What about the diet when you get the diagnosis? What about when you, when you lose your job? What about when your marriage falls apart? Are, are, are you going to cling to the hope that impersonal chance offers you? Are you going to cling to some man-made myth? Which is the truth that there is a, a personal God who created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, does it mean something then? You better believe it does. 
Genesis 1.1 really, really matters, brothers and sisters. God, God is. And God made us. God made everything. And, and, he, and He relates to us. And He cares about us. And He can be trusted. I mean, this is the impact that this truth had upon His people when, it, when these words were first given. This is the impact it should have upon us. But even in a greater way. Because we have more, more of it. This isn't just the stuff for philosophers to argue about and debate about in the classroom. This is the stuff of day-to-day life for us. We made it through one verse. <laughs> but I, I want to close by reading Psalm 95. And turn there with me if you have a copy of the Scriptures in front of you or look on with somebody next to you. Psalm 95 is Psalm of praise and exalting this God who is the Creator. I want to close here. and I, I realize there's a, there's a lot and I'm not claiming that everything was organized to be the most clear. We'll, we'll get some traction as we go in Genesis. But I don't want you to miss the, the, the impact of what this is intended. And this is, this is the psalmist giving us words for how we should respond to this, these great truths. Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to, to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. Why? Why would we do those things? For the Lord, and He alone, is a great God. And He is a great King above all gods. In His hand, and in His hand alone, are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are also His. And that's that merism. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker as opposed to bowing down to those idols and trusting in them. For He, and He alone, is our God. And we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. And listen to this warning. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof though they had seen my work. Now, we don't have time to go look at that context in Exodus 17. This is the, the, the text says that the people were complaining. And this is their complaint. Is the Lord among us or not? That's a quote. Is the Lord among us or is He not? They're seeing these gods. Is, is everything that God said true? Is He really with us? For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Listen, see what's happening there. It's, it's summarizing, again, the context of Genesis 1 and it's giving us in song. God is the creator of the universe. And, and, and like Israel, if, if you are a believer here this morning, the, the appropriate response to that is there in verse 6, come. Let us worship. Let us bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. And, and as we see, idolatry is not a unique temptation to the Jews in, in, in Moses' day. Our hearts, as we say, they're idol factories. 
We're prone to wander. We're prone to direct our confidence to things other than Christ. To doubt Him. To distrust Him. To look for help in other places. We're constantly in need of directing our trust and worship back to Jesus Christ. And Genesis 1.1 is here to do just that. It brings us back to behold Him. It does for us what it did for Israel in the wilderness. It should. And so we're gonna we're going to sing and we're gonna we're gonna worship and sing to our Maker here in just a moment. And and then um, and then after after that, Mike Hutzel is gonna come and share some exciting uh, updates regarding our missions and and Grace Promise. And again, that work is not disconnected from Genesis 1.1. It's earth that the Lord has made and all of its inhabitants. We were going with the Gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that You, um, as we're going to sing even now, You are the, uh, Lord Jesus, we thank You that You are the, the glorious Christ. We're going to say you're the, you're the greatest of all, all delights, that Your power is unequaled. And we're declaring as we say those words, Lord, what Israel needed to understand when they first heard these words of Genesis 1-1. There is no one like our God. There is no God besides our God, Creator of heavens, of the heavens and the earth. So we declare this truth to you, to one another. Now, for any of us who might be here, we're doubting that, we're questioning that, maybe, maybe intellectually, maybe there's skeptics here, and, and I'm, thank God that they're here, and, and we're honored by that. And so I pray that they would consider these words that we're singing now. And, and, and I pray, though, for others that it's not, a, it's not an intellectual doubt, but it's, it's the reality that we look to other things for trust. We're trusting in, in, in idols of our own making, if it's career pursuits or with some relationship or some substance. We're looking to other things. And I pray that we would again confess together, Lord Christ, you are you alone. Your power has no equal. We declare that together now in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.